I enjoy going to thrift stores to find little treasures. I have a certain list of items I'm sure is in my head, those things I'm supposed to collect and hold on to for a while. Now, no one's told me what's on the list. I just know I'm supposed to go find them. These items are never very expensive. Um, I see them as portals for understanding more about myself and my family, recalling events uh, or people I have long forgotten or may never have met. When I visit secondhand stores, I usually look not buying anything because the more things you have, the more things have a grip on you. If I like something, I'll take a picture of it and walk away. If the item really calls out to me, I'll pop back into the store and buy it. If it's still there when I return, then that item was intended for me to care for and delight in. I'm drawn to household items produced in the 1930s and 60s. During seminary, I did pick up a beautiful Art Deco sea foam green vase by McCoy, an Ohio pottery manufacturer. I remember that day with my friend Catherine as we left the draconian COVID distancing restrictions on campus and scoured Middle Tennessee, exploring secondhand stores for goodbyes. I use the vase as a bookend. It works double duty as my receptacle for loose change. It's also part of a vignette of items that include a toy that belonged to my mother and a book given to me as a child by my godmother. Another item I recently bought is a little brass alarm clock. It's about three inches in diameter. If you have a cup of coffee with me in my office, you'll see it on my desk, ticking away, unless I forgot to wind it. Even though it's from the 1950s and looks like it has never been cleaned, it keeps rather good time because of its Swiss components, I bet. Just for fun, the other day I set the alarm for 2.15 in the afternoon and anticipated the loud ring. Of course, I forgot about it, and while emailing a friend, it went off. Predictably, I jumped, a little power surge entered my bloodstream, and I quickly turned it off, concerned my office mates might think me a little daft. I like that little clock a lot. I, it was used and loved by someone before me, and now I get to enjoy it, care for it, keep it ticking, and at times be alarmed by it. In this day of computers and smartphones, which manage our time so well, entertain us, and gosh, even provide the means to talk to somebody, I enjoy having this piece that does one thing and does it well enough and needs a little bit of weekly care in return. You might say, it's a little treasure. Treasure is one of the themes of today's gospel reading, which is chock full of parables. These short but complex stories give light on how God works and what we might expect in our future as followers of Jesus. It is our third in a series of Sunday reading parables in the Matthew's Gospel. Today it feels like we're taking today to quickly finish up all this in a series of teachings, maybe six Parables, definitely five, so we can complete the lesson, much like when a teacher is rushing to finish an assigned curriculum before the end of the year. All the parables are about the kingdom of heaven. The first two are about very small things. First, a mustard seed, 
which, by the way, a mustard seed in Judah looks more tiny than an eyelash, which is much smaller than the big round yellow seeds you get in the grocery store. You can find them in our Good Shepherd Atrium, where our three to six-year-olds learn about God. They have a stash in there. Mustards grow as weeds, really, so it's puzzling that the parable mentions the man sowing them. But like weeds last week, the seeds may just be tangled in with the grain since mustard seeds are distributed in the wind. Sowers would not want a mustard seed in their field, which is a point, I suppose. The mustard tree is the unexpected and maybe unwanted thing in such a very ordinary place, right in the midst of what we think is important, not what God purposes. The kingdom described The kingdom begins as the smallest thing imaginable and over time becomes tall and large, nurturing and protecting those who find refuge in its branches. It's what God does with just a little help from the sower. The kingdom is also like yeast or leaven. Leaven is a portion left over or reserved bread dough we use to make fresh loaves of bread, much like sourdough. One needs to keep the leaven carefully. It's precious. If it's too ripe, it'll make you sick. If it's not ripe enough, it won't raise the loaf. The woman in the story has enough flour to make 100 loaves. And if you might know your way through the gospel, next, in the next chapter, Matthew uses this to prefigure the feeding of the 5,000. Unlike the mustard seed, the agent in the dough is too small for the eye to see, and its action produces loaves of abundance and life-sustaining food. In both of these images, the kingdom of God needs people to co-create. We need the mustard tree and the bread. Each time, each takes time to nurture and to grow up. The next two parables are a little more challenging. First, we have a hidden treasure discovered by a person in a field. He doesn't own the field. He reburies the treasure and with great joy sells all he has to buy the field. Well, that might seem a little deceptive and hard to explain, only that we're talking about the first century, and like gold coins from Spanish galleons buried deep in the ocean, who's to make the claim? Here, the person with great joy does not just take the treasure, but sells all he has to purchase the land to to regain that treasure. And like the merchant, a person really not held in great high esteem and seemingly unworthy living on the margins who searches for the priceless pearl does the same, giving up all that he has for the unique pearl. He actively seeks the kingdom, this rare, precious, and one-of-a-kind treasure. In these stories, there are three actions of discipleship. First, finding the treasure or pursuit of the valuable item. There's a discovery or revelation of the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. Next is a decision to sell all that is valuable in this kingdom, this world, getting rid of all your earthly possessions. And their joyful willingness to sell everything, each person gains a new life. Their conversion of life by actively deciding to sell everything sets them on the course of salvation. Perhaps we can interpret these parables this way. For the man in the field, it's for that treasure 
that Eden, a perfection of life once lost and buried through the ages, is now reclaimed. For the merchant, a savior so valuable, so perfect, without blemish, that one would joyfully give up everything to follow. And in these parables, both people follow through with their decisions, and that's the last step, action. All three steps are required to fully live as a committed member of the kingdom of God. Finally, the parable of the fishing net with a full catch of all kinds of fish. The scene is a little grim as we enter the end of the age. There's a separation of the good fish from the bad fish, the valuable fish, and the fish no one wants to buy. This is something that all fishermen do after they bring in their haul. Notice the angels are given the task of separating the righteous from the unrighteous. There's hope here when it comes to this event because we have the blessing of time. Jesus states the kingdom of heaven is, not will be. This is not just about what is to come, but what about decisions and actions we take in response to God's abundance of gifts. There's so much to absorb in these parables. Almost in comedic fashion, Jesus Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood all this? (laughs) You can almost envision the 12 disciples wide-eyed and slack-jawed, huddled up close to Jesus, answering, yes. Now, really, come on. (laughs) I read this gospel passage, and what I'd really like to ask him, do you know what a fire hose does? At least Jesus gives us some direction with these parables. There is value in both the scripture and Jesus' teachings. Like the little treasures from my shopping trips, that little clock and the pretty vase are all are ways for me to understand the past and connect with family long gone. New things like my computer, creating a collage, writing the sermon help me to investigate and interpret the meaning of family and cultural history in my life right now. Jesus instructs his followers to read scripture in light of Jesus' instruction, his life and ministry, and eventually his death and resurrection. As he says, the learned scribe will bring the treasures of old and new to discern God's will in our lives, revealing the kingdom of heaven right here and now. So we've gone on a whirlwind journey of the kingdom of heaven in just one short gospel passage. The most significant takeaway this morning, I think, is that we are in the time of the kingdom of heaven, and our call is to discipleship of Christ. We can marvel at the glimpses we are given of eternity right now as we live and breathe here on earth. The presence of a loved one, the laugh of a child, a beautiful sunset on the beach, and as the merchant and the man in the field discovered, We too have joy by deciding to reorder our priorities for the treasure of the kingdom. And in that decision, we become co-creators with God through Christ. It is quite a gift we have been given this morning, this gift of the kingdom of heaven.